Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast where we explore assisted reproductive technology and how it affects and changes lives. This is not the stuff of science fiction. This is not Gattaca or a handmade tale. This is real life stories, real people, real families, and the way it affects them. I'm Jennifer White. I am your co-host of the podcast, I Want to Put a Baby in You. I am the director of Bright Futures Families. And I am honored to be here with my co-host, Ellen Trackman, who is uh, obviously my co-director of Bright Futures Families, my sister, and also an attorney in this field. So, But the most important of those qualifications is, of course, that I am your sister. I know. You're, it is you're, important. Your little sister. I'll note that as well. <laughs> I'm so, so young and youthful still. But yes. So I'm Ellen Trackman. I am an attorney specialized in assisted reproductive technology law. I love all things surrogacy, egg sperm, embryo donation, and all the intricacies of the law in that area. Uh, I also write a weekly column for the website abovethelaw.com on the same area, assisted reproductive technology law and the many cases that come out every week defining what the law is in this area. But um, I also co-own Colorado Surrogacy with my sister, although she does all the work, as we all know, um, for everything, really. This podcast, too. We know that as well. I click the button uh, to make I it just, start and stop. So, I mean, that's a lot of work. Uh, um, but I am very excited today. I have to say... We have had some amazing people willing to come on this podcast and talk to us and share their expertise. But this is this might be one of my favorites. Real, I mean, honestly, like I am so honored and amazed about um, today's interviewee, which is Danielle Kitson. So Danielle Kitson is an attorney. So that that might be one of the reasons I love her. Of course. But she, I mean, she is a, she's a big deal. She's a, a big wig. She's a, a partner at a, a huge international law firm. She's a very impressive litigator winning like multi-million dollar um, litigation deals, all the time, not deals, trials all the time. I mean, really, really impressive. And her story of how um, she went through infertility and how um, she embraced and formed a family. Just, I love her openness. I love how amazing it is. Um, so I'm really excited to, to have her on, um, that she's sharing her story with us. I'm honored to be here today with Danielle Kitson, who to me personally is truly an inspiration. And I'm really excited to have her here um, for so many reasons. So she is a woman and a mother and a partner at a big international law firm. Um, I kind of feel like she's like the inspiration of, you know, having it all of having that amazing career and also being a great parent to her children. And she also has such a great story of how she chose to become a parent and that, that journey. And I love that she is so open about it and willing to share kind of all the, the gritty details with us. Um, so Danielle, welcome. And if you don't mind giving your own slight introduction as well, or a better one that I can give. Thank you so much, Ellen. I think that that actually that introduction was um, kinder than I would give myself. Thank you very much. But um, yes, I am a lawyer. I'm a partner at a law firm and the mother to two beautiful boys, six year old Ethan and four year old Hunter. Um, and I'm just living every day balancing my profession and my kids and I'm happy to be here this morning. Yay. Um, so starting kind of from the beginning, did you did you always think you wanted to be a parent? 
Yes. So my mom did a very good job. She was a single mom raising my brother and me. And she did a very good job all the way through uh, telling us how important it is to be a parent and that the most fulfilling thing in life and the most important thing in life is to be a parent. So as early as 25, 26 years old, I was already saying, you know, if I haven't found the right person or Mr. Right by, you know, a certain age, I'm just going to do it myself, and I'm going to throw a big artificial insemination party. That used to be my joke. <laughs> I love it. I love it that you do early. They're like, I don't need someone else, whatever. Um, but then you did get married. I did. Um, yeah. So I actually moved to Nebraska for a year because I was sick of the dating scene here in Colorado. <laughs> because is it say, is it better in Nebraska? Should all the well, single ladies move to Nebraska? So interestingly, in my late 20s and early 30s, they used to say that, you know, Denver was the best place to be single, but that was because everybody loved being single. So so I got this job offer randomly in Omaha, Nebraska, and decided to move out there in part because I thought maybe there are more committed men out in Omaha. I will will tell you dating in San Francisco was terrible. I'll just say Uh, that. Like I was like, anywhere is better. I'm sure Denver is much better. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Omaha was fruitful. I was only there two months and met my now ex-husband. And I don't regret that relationship. We had, you know, a good, uh, a good marriage, not a marriage that I would want to be in. Uh, for my whole life, but I learned a lot from it and, you know, am amicable with my ex. So we were, we met in 2007. We were together a total of three years, um, married for half of that. So a year and a half. Um, and we moved from Omaha to Denver in that whole process um, and split when we were in Denver. So that that's kind of the relationship there. It's because he he wanted everybody to be single. Everybody likes to be single in Denver, right? Fun, having fun, having sing- no, no, you want to be single. I don't know. Yeah. No. Um. So so you didn't have kids together. How did that kind of thinking then then go once you decide you didn't want to be with this person and that the marriage didn't make sense, but you still want kids? Yeah. So we had started to try to have kids, um, and you know I'm a total open book. Oh, our our relationship really. We were perfect for each other in every conceivable way. We were excellent life partners. We loved planning things together. We loved, you know, doing all kinds of things together, entertaining. And um, but we just never really had sort of the physical passion side of it. And I thought, you know, at that time, I thought we have everything else. And so I'm willing to sacrifice on that one area of my life. And then after three years, realized that you really can't sacrifice on that one area of your life. So I, we had started to try. And as it became more real, I realized, you know, I don't think this is going to last. And I don't want to be in a situation where, you know, five years down the line, we've got kids, we're getting divorced, and I'm going to have to have joint custody. And deal with new people coming into his life. So all of this kind of came together in a perfect storm. And it really was the trying to have kids that was the catalyst to us splitting because I I think otherwise I would have stayed with him for, you know, probably years longer. Um, But that feels so opposite to a lot of things. Like people say that the relationship stayed together longer because they were trying to have kids, like that they wanted to stay together for that reason, not, not the opposite, which is what you're saying. So I think that's fascinating to hear. Yeah, it's kind of unique. So we actually had tried for about three months. 
And I am a very impatient person. We had an appointment with um, uh, Dr. Schoolcraft because already, even in that three months, I had gone to Kaiser, which I was a Kaiser member at the time, and started getting some testing done. Um, And was even just thinking of going straight to Dr. Schoolcraft with my now ex when we decided to split, we canceled that appointment. And I just, I just went forward with Kaiser. They did a series of tests. They told me everything looked fine. And then I did three rounds of IUI or yeah, IUI. But at this point, you're a split. <laughs> the IUI is not with your spouse. Correct. Yeah. So my spouse and I decided to split and we had this kind of quirky, weird relationship where he actually helped me pick my sperm donor. <laughs> we went online together. That is, to, that's uh, hilarious. Yeah, we went online. Was he pushing you towards like people that look like him? You're like, oh, this guy's really handsome. Yeah, it was. A, so we, what I was looking for, I didn't share this with him, but I was really looking for, <laughs> you know, traits that reminded me of um, my kind of my love in, of my life in my 20s. I love that it. kind of was the one that oh. got away. So was looking at, so, you know, he was very tall. You did not tell your ex-husband. Yeah, no, I got it. <laughs> that's, that's fair. Uh, yeah. And I, Sorry. I was also looking for um, traits that were opposite to mine that that would hopefully, you know, make a well-rounded baby. So, and now he will know. Like low, low IQ, not tall, good. Okay. Um, more like, I, really the two things, super left-brained and scientific and musical. This guy uh, played 11 different instruments, was very um, musically inclined. So, uh, and I have always wanted to be like, in college, I tried out for an acapella group and it was like, a bad American Idol audition, like the <laughs> looks on their faces. And I knew I couldn't sing, but I just, you know, had this passion for it. So I think deep down, I was hoping now that my kids will be musical and they're showing signs of it. So and then you can just stand oh, backstage good. at American Idol. You can be the mom in the background Ooh. crying, you know? Yeah. Well, I love the voice where they show the families during the blind auditions and the families are watching and like cheering them. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so you chose someone on musical talent, left brain skills. Um, your ex husband helped you choose this donor, yep. and then you proceeded with with IUI with with the sperm donor. Yes, and so my ex, um, this was late March 2010. He uh, he actually moved to Iowa, took a promotion, so he helped me pick the sperm donor. Then he moved away and was completely out of the picture, and then I proceeded with three rounds of IUI on my own with Kaiser and none of them took. That's that's frustrating. Yes. And for a type A personality like mine, I, I think a lot of women would have kept trying with IUI and I just went straight to Dr. Schoolcraft and said, I want your opinion about this. And I kind of want to go with your clinic. And he looked at my paperwork from Kaiser and said that they, um, like in the paperwork, he could already see issues. He could see that my A uh, quality was starting to become poor. It was right on the fringe and that I had a poisonous fluid in my tube. 
one of my tubes. That's, that's a, crazy. That's amazing that he could see that when Kaiser was just like, oh, you're yeah. fine. <laughs> oh, and also just for just for listeners who might not know, um, Dr. Schoolcraft is known as a renowned reproductive endocrinologist, so a fertility doctor who works here in Colorado with, at the at CCRM, the Colorado Center for Reproductive Medicine. Yeah. So, I mean, so that was already enlightening. And then he has a whole battery of tests that he does, um, which are very thorough. He's ridiculously thorough, which I really appreciated. Um, And he found that in addition to those issues I just mentioned, I also had a polyp field in my uterus covering about half of my uterus. So embryos that were trying to implant could not implant. So that was an additional crazy hurdle to these poor little embryos trying to make it. Plummeting egg quality, poisonous fluid, a polyp field. <laughs> ah, where do we go? Exactly. So he's like, I'll fix it all. Yeah. So we, I had surgery that summer. Um, and he, this is an example of him being so thorough the fluid was in my tube, one of my tubes. And he said, listen, I'm going to be in there doing this surgery. Would you mind if I did kind of an exploratory surgery and go up and look at your tube and how it's positioned and just assure myself that I don't believe any of this fluid could leak down into your uterus um, based on the positioning of it. And he said, once I'm in there, um, if I don't like the way it looks, I'd like to tie off the tube. So I said, that's fine. And so he did that, looked at it. It looked fine to him. He did not tie it off. But that, to me, was an example of, wow, he is really making so sure, sure yeah. um, that nothing could go awry here. Right. And thinking ahead for the surgery. That's great. Right. That's incredible. So then, okay, so you had surgery. You know, success. Yeah, yes. you got to go home, rest, get, put your feet up for a few days, which I know also as a type A person is impossible to do. Uh, right. <laughs> no one believes that you did that. No one. Uh, yeah, no one ever believes I rest either. So, <laughs> um, but so what happens next then? How how long did you have to wait until you you started the next part of the process? I think it was about. Uh, two cycles. I, I know that I ended up having my transfer ultimately in late November. So, and I had the surgery in August. So in between somewhere in there, I started the IVF process um, to do a retrieval and I had a fresh transfer. So just went through the process, soup to nuts and had my transfer and got pregnant. So that was a great celebration. That's great. That's wonderful. So, okay. So you retrieval though, let's go backwards a little bit though. So, mm-hmm. cause those are two separate, I mean, yes, they happen all together. If you, especially if you do a fresh transfer right afterwards, but retrieval, what, what were the results? You know, that's the exciting part. Everybody wants to know how many, how many things came out. <laughs> yeah. So it was great. Uh, based on, I think I only had, I, well, at that time, I think I had 12 resting follicles which again, he said, you know, is starting to become not so great. Um, and I ended up getting 11, 13 eggs that first time. Wow. Um, and 11 of them fertilized. Um, okay, that's, that's not bad numbers. Eight of them became embryos. That's incredible. Um, three of them, because of my, you know, th- th- they put me on the like DEFCON 5 protocol for... <laughs> Um, you know, drugs and the like, like, like it's, and they transferred three embryos. So that tells you like the, the severity of the issues that I was having, that he was willing to do that. That 
That's amazing because you you were risking you were looking at a possibility of triplets. Yeah. And were you were you mentally prepared for that? They're like, I might have triplets. I, I just didn't think the odds of that were very high. Um, I did think twins was a possibility, and I think you know mm-hmm. when you haven't had kids yet. The idea of twins is so endearing, right? Oh, twins, and it'll be a boy and a girl, and I'll dress them, and they'll be so cute. And then once you have one child, you're like, I don't know how people with twins survive. Like, <laughs> So in any event, it turned out to be just one, thankfully. Um, and yeah, the IVF process, I really strangely, weirdly enjoyed because I felt like I was taking control of it. I'm sort of a control freak. And, you know, following a protocol and doing what I was supposed to and going in and seeing the ultrasound progress, all of that was weirdly appealing to me. (laughs) So I could see that where you're not just waiting, like you're actually like taking steps, like you're working towards it. Yeah, I I can too. So, okay. So yes, I'm, I'm injecting myself. Exactly. So, so fresh transfer results. Yes. 10 day wait was what? Pregnant. (laughs) Yay! So that was just awesome. And like, I try to do every, I got acupuncture during the, uh, the whole process leading up to the retrieval. And then I also went to Mexico just before the retrieval and just really tried to relax. I like sat on a beach for a week and thought, I just want to be, because I'm such a stress case, um, I feel like that kind of worked. <laughs> so that was that this must. I, I mean, I, I guess will say it, this right? must have been before the Zika scare. Then, <laughs> oh, like, well before, yeah, we're talking. Yeah. Does doctors? Does Doctor Schoolcraft? Um, you know, does he prescribe a week in Mexico before the retrieval? That's he doesn't, that really but he nice. should. And I'm I, the interest. <laughs> he also has some interesting things. I mean, I had to, um, I had to see a child psychologist for an hour before the retrieval. Um, for what purpose? I don't know. I think it was because I was going to be a single mother. Um, and that was a fascinating hour. I mean, I only spent one hour with her, but it's been invaluable because most of what we talked about is, you know, the challenges of being a single mother and being in a unique family situation and how to message that to the kids um, and she just gave me a few kind of key tips and uh, pointed me to some books that were really helpful, you know, children's books for the kids. Um, and just that simple messaging, I followed it since they were born and it's worked really well. So, I mean, I'm glad he did that. Uh, yeah, that, that, that is interesting. So you have books that you, you read to them that kind of tell this, the story? Yes. And I, I really focused down on just one because there was another one that was close. It was called, Why Don't I Have a Daddy? <laughs> and it was about, um, <laughs> yeah. and it was like a lioness and her cub walking through, you know, the African savanna or what have you and talking about, and I didn't quite like it. And so then I was trying to like revise it. Typical lawyer, right? I was like redacting (laughs) out parts and then I was going to make my own. I totally redacted Uh, when I was reading to my child when she was little, I will say. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. Ultimately the book that has worked the best is this book called the family book by Todd Parr. Um, And it's, Family super simple. Okay. It's just about, and it's really colorful and all these like crazy characters, fun characters. Um, and it's just 
about the message that all families are different. Um, and it will say things like, you know, some families are big and it shows like a family of pigs in colorful outfits and there are like, you know, 15 of them. And some families are small and it's, you know, a dad or a mother um, bird with one baby bird. And it's that kind of thing just to show them that, you know, there's no typical family. I love it. Really, I love that, actually. So, okay, so you have your first son, you know, so yay, you get to handle single motherhood. How did how did that start off? (laughs) Yeah, so before I even did this, I drafted, critically important, drafted my mother and my brother. Uh, so my mom, she already lived like two blocks away because my ex-husband and I, you know, both of us together were super planners. So we literally moved her into this condo that was like two blocks away to be our nanny ultimately. So that was the idea. Um, and then as a single mom, I asked her if she would be willing to move in with me because the night duty was daunting to me. I thought, you know, I, in my career, I cannot afford to be sleep deprived. Like that would be a real problem. Um, so she agreed to, she said, yes. Wow. Yeah, she agreed to move in <laughs> the nights and be my full-time nanny. And that sounds like is, you have an amazing mother. That's yeah. amazing. I would say she, most grandparents are like excited about the idea of watching a little bit and giving back, not the idea of doing night duty and changing diapers. So that's awesome. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then my brother agreed to be kind of a male role model for my kids. And at the time, I did not know. I, I just assumed I'd be having girls and I ended up having two boys. So he has been key. I moved, I ended up moving 10 minutes away from him. They see him every weekend. We spend, we, you know, our families spend pretty much all day Sunday together every weekend. Um, and he ended up having two girls, so it works well. You know, he's got these boys that he can be with and I've got his girls that I can be with and have fun with. That's fantastic. So then you, you made it through, okay, obviously you had a lot of help, which is awesome to get through that first bit. When, when did you decide to try again? So I knew I wanted to have two. Um, and normally if, you know, if all things were ideal, I would have spaced them probably three to four years apart but I knew I had these serious issues. So as soon as Ethan turned one, I called Dr. Schoolcraft's office and kicked off a new process. And were you doing chromosomal testing? Did you know you were having two boys like before you were even pregnant? I did not. I just went, you know, full speed ahead and did not have them tested mostly because of the cost, honestly. I mean, it's, it's expensive on top of something already expensive, if you know what I mean. Right. Right. So then for that second transfer, what, what happened then? How did, how did that one work? Obviously I assume you did not do another fresh transfer. You did a frozen transfer. That's right. So I had, as I had mentioned before, I had eight embryos that came out of the first retrieval, three of which were transferred into me. Um, and the remaining five were frozen. So I went in, this is July of 2012. I had five frozen embryos um, Dr. Schoolcraft still requires you to go through the full battery of tests, which makes sense because he wants to see, you know, what's going on inside your uterus. Um, and he said to me, you know, my egg quality obviously had deteriorated further and I had fewer resting follicles. And he said to me, 
you are at the very, very end of your fertility life in terms of being able to do IVF with, you know, statistics that would make sense. So he said, my recommendation to you would be to do a retrieval um, right now as insurance in case the five embryos don't take, um, which was an interesting concept. And I said, well, you know, could I do the transfer first, see if it works and then do the retrieval if it doesn't, only if it doesn't work. And he's like, no, <laughs> you have to do it wow. now. I was like, not even three months from now. He's like, that's right. Not even three months from now. Wow. So, wow. so I embarked on a whole fresh retrieval process at that point. Wow. And how'd it go? Um, it went well. So I, that time I, uh, they ended up getting eight eggs out of that and they just froze the eggs. And what I found to be fascinating is that in the two years between when I did my yeah. retrieval with Ethan, the tech advanced, the technology yeah. advanced, and Dr. Skullcraft had um, had some breakthroughs in egg freezing technology. So he said, you know, at that point they were fine freezing eggs without any fertilization. Um, so those eggs went into the bank. Um, I then did a uh, frozen transfer. This time, two embryos. Um, and did not do any genetic testing in advance. So they transferred two in. I had three embryos remaining and eight frozen eggs remaining. I will say that breakthrough from a legal perspective is huge because there's all these cases where someone tries to preserve their fertility. So they go through an egg retrieval and it used to be that only embryos would make it or had a better chance at least. And so they would have to fertilize them and then they would split with that person or that donor would you know, it'd be like a known friend and they wouldn't want you to use the embryos and then you have a problem. And so having this technology of vitrification that allows eggs to be good, you know, legally change the landscape that you can just freeze your eggs and you don't have to rely on another person to be able to use them in the future. Yeah, it was amazing. Anyway, sorry, and side note. The other game changer technology that came out in those two years, it's sort of crazy, was the maternity 21 test. So that was also you know, very, having all of the issues that I had and having that second retrieval at 38 um, to be able, you know, once I was pregnant with the second one, being able to just do a blood test at 10 weeks and um, confirm that there were, there were no chromosomal abnormalities, including Downs was a great comfort to me. Um, because, you know, obviously being an IVF mom, you really don't want to, you know, take any biopsies of a placenta or do an amniocentesis or any of that stuff. So that was really, uh, I thought that that was just a cool thing that they had come up with. Yeah, technology. just a blood test. Amazing. Right. So that was a spoiler alert. So I guess that means that that second transfer was successful. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> <Woo>! <laughs> Yeah. And so then I had my second son, Hunter, in July of 2013, two years after, almost exactly two years after Ethan. Um, and the the one in terms of my fertility journey, um, one key point is that both of them were preemies. Um, Ethan was born at 34 weeks and Hunter was more serious. I, um, you know, at 28 weeks, 
Oh, wow. Like my, that's a super preemie. Yeah, my legs. Well, he was born at 29 weeks, but my legs swelled up to the size of tree trunks and my left one turned purple. And I, wow. I was one of those people oh that, you know, I, I had an appointment for later that week. I think this was like a Tuesday or Wednesday. So I thought to myself, I'm just going to soldier through. And um, Thursday night before wow. that appointment, I my lungs were filling with fluid and I was having oh, wow. a lot of and I remember laying in bed and thinking, I might actually die because like there were a couple times I like couldn't breathe, um, and I should have wow. gone to the emergency room, but I didn't. Um, and when I went in the next day, my blood pressure was through the roof. I had preeclampsia. I ended up being hospitalized for ten days while I was trying to keep the baby in as long as possible. And finally, the doctor said, um, "You know, we can't wait any longer. We have to take the baby out." So. Um, so he was born at 29 weeks, but all of that to say, I had serious pregnancy complications too. Right. Wow. Um, that's a lot that's, to go through. That's crazy. So then that means that's the end of your journey, right? You decided not to even try again. No, it's not the end of my journey. <laughs> so, so, um, you had remaining embryos. Yeah. What did you decide to so do? So I had, um, I had the three remaining embryos and the eight eggs. And I, you know, first of all, it was weighing on me what to do with these embryos. It's a hard decision for pretty much anyone who goes through IVF. Yeah. And you just have that single-minded focus to get the baby, right? <laughs> and you don't think about right. the, you know, afterwards beyond that. Um, so that was weighing on me. And then I um, had always wanted to have a little girl I had only ever wanted to have two kids, but I had wanted to have one of each. And so it was also weighing on me that I had not had a little girl in addition to my two wonderful boys. So I decided um, in 2016 to go for it again. Um, and at, at this point, did you have the embryos tested so you would know what they, whether it was a girl or a boy? Yes. So this time, because the gender was so important to me, I, and I decided to go ahead and just, um, do process everything. If you will, I fertilized the eight eggs. Um, that resulted, I think in four viable embryos, but then when you tested everything, I ended up with three viable chromosomally normal embryos. So that was after all the testing and all the fertilization and everything said and done, I had three good ones. That that's total. Cause you, did you have remaining embryos from before? So that was, they were tested as part of this. So I fertilized the eight eggs oh, and then it. once I, I had embryos, them. I tested everything and all said and done out of all of that had three good ones left. And all girls. No, <laughs> one girl and two boys. So, uh, so I did a transfer of the girl first in the summer of 2016, um, and was absolutely crushed when it didn't take. It was a chemical pregnancy too. So I had this, you know, image in my mind of this little girl trying to implant and almost sort of implanting, and then it just didn't take. That was that was pretty, pretty devastating. I can imagine. And during this whole time, are you you're still doing trials and you know defending multi million dollar companies? You're you're still doing it all at the same time. Yeah, and I mean, part of the reason that I waited a little bit longer um, 
this time is because in 2014, you know, I had an infant and a two-year-old and I, um, got this huge case and it was a, it ended up being a career making case for me. It was, uh, you know, a $70 million multi-jurisdictional corporate rating case. And I ended up trying it to verdict in uh, March of 2015, complete defense verdict for, in favor of my clients. So that was awesome. Congratulations. Uh, That's great. You. But that was all consuming. So juggling that, the kids. Um, and I saw, I mean, I am adamant about seeing them every single night. I, you know, I always, at that point in time, uh, always left at five, always spent time with them. Um, and I would, oftentimes have to work late and would work a little bit of the weekend, but I never felt like I sacrificed that quality time with them, which was really important to me. Um, but between that and the trial, it was just insane. So, um, so yeah, so I had that kind of career making moment. Um, I made equity partner as a result of that. I was already just a junior partner. Um, and made congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) That's, that's what I was saying. That's amazing that you're doing all of this. So you're working to become a mother also raising, I mean, you already are a mother, you have two young kids, you're going through IVF and winning these like huge verdicts and and becoming equity partner. That's, that's incredible. (laughs) Thank you. I mean, what I will say is interestingly, I think I had a much easier time of it than my friends, my female friends who were married and splitting, you know, childcare duties, like they, they had to be at the daycare at 530 on the dot. And they often had to be the one who would go if, um, if their child was sick, and the daycare was calling. Um, and for me, I so basically your mom is the key. Yeah, I hate to say this, but I basically had the equivalent of like a 50s housewife, right? She's like, home. She's available. She's taking care of everything. She refused to cook though. That was our deal. When she moved in, she said, I will never cook. <laughs> so I said, okay. Hey, deal. You know what? If you got to draw a line, that's an okay line yeah, to draw, right? Uh, Take out works. Right. So, I mean, I think that that's good. That's going to be me with my kids. So you did all of this and on top of that, went back on the crazy making hormones too to go through and try to have this yeah. little girl, <laughs> which makes it all the more impressive. Yes. Um, so she, so you did not end up having the little girl. What did you end up deciding to do with the two remaining embryos, your your boy embryos? So through the process, I was, um, you know, really thinking more and more about what to do with these embryos, especially after having implanted. Um, the little girl and it not taking and it, it still that image still really bothered me that this whole thought that you know she was a person that tried you know <laughs> uh, so I thought you know a couple things I looked into um, actually giving the embryos up for adoption which you, I didn't know you could do but there I was googling it and there's a national embryo adoption agency and you can literally give your embryos up for adoption just like a baby. Um, and you have all of those options of it being a closed adoption and open adoption, um, you know, whether you would want to see the family, um, visit them, that kind of thing. So, and I'm, I'm sure someone with, um, infertility issues or needing help would be absolutely delighted to have super lawyer plus super musician embryos. I mean, sorry, <laughs> yeah. pretty, 
equilibrium. Yeah. So, I mean, I was really looking into that. And then the thought, my aunt actually told me, she said, you know, I have a friend who did this. Um, and it was back in the day before, you know, they had agencies and the like, but she was kind of a nineties, uh, a woman who had IVF done in the nineties and she ended up giving the embryos to a friend. Um, and the friend lived about five hours away in Grand Junction, uh, and raised those kids. And my aunt said that was really hard for her to not be raising her biological children. So she actually convinced me through just talking with her about that, that I did not want to do that. Um, you know, did not want to know I had children out there in the world that I couldn't be with and raise. Um, and so finally I just said, you know what, I, I am someone who can afford to have two more children um, and even though it will be crazy and I might have four boys, I'm, you know, willing to do it. Did, did your, did your mom agree to this? We call her greedy granny because she wants as many grandkids as she can oh, possibly oh, get. I love it. Oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> so she was a hundred percent on board. She, uh, and you know, even after this, oh, that's um, great. you know, but I did those two um, transfers and, and Dr. Schoolcraft insisted it be only one at a time because of my serious pregnancy issues. Um, you know, both he and my obstetrician said, you cannot carry twins. You just can't. Um, it's too dangerous. So they did one at a time um, for me and neither one of them took. And if you, if you don't mind me asking, how, how old were you at this, at this point? So at that point, let me think about this, summer 2016, I was just about to turn 42. Uh, yeah. So older. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so you transfer them and neither, neither stuck at all. No. Yeah. And statistically three transfers with the, those quality embryos and everything is fine with my uterus. There is no explanation for why. And they actually enrolled me in a study because, you know, it's whatever was wrong is something that is probably in my uterine environment that they just don't know what it is yet. And they were in the process of testing various different things in the uterine environment that might be hostile to embryos you know, in the fluids and the, you know, I don't know, makeup of the uterine wall. And so they actually did a biopsy of my uterus and took samples and it's a blind study. So I'll never know what the, what they were studying or the results, unless I were to, you know, monitor Schoolcraft studies that come out. But, um, but that was, you know, from a statistics standpoint, especially because I had two successful IVFs, um, it should have worked. So yeah, it was crazy. So you said something, just a few words that kind of cued me that we've never really addressed in all of this. You know, you said something about closed versus open adoption. What is your relationship with your sperm donor? Oh yeah. So he is anonymous, but he had put in his profile that he might one day be open. Um, so I kind of liked that idea. I didn't like any of the ones who said they were open. And I kind of didn't like that concept from the beginning, you know, when they're younger, I don't know why. Um, but so I chose an anonymous donor, but one who might be open one day. Um, 
And then I actually registered the boys with the California Cryobank Registry under my donor's number. Um, and several other families registered their children with the same donor. Um, and we ended up starting a Facebook group. Um, and we call, that Facebook group is called 11541 Dibblings for donor wow. siblings. <laughs> uh, yeah. So we basically track, you know, we've, been, I've been watching these kids grow up in pictures for, uh, you know, about five years now. Um, and I can't explain it. It just brings me so much joy to see these kids, um, grow up. So do you see the resemblance with them? What's that? Do you see the resemblance? Like, can you actually tell that they're, they're dibblings? I mean, they, yeah, strong resemblances. And the interesting thing is there's kind of two strains. Like there's mostly they all look the same. And what happens is they all have the mom's eyes and then the same muzzle, like the same jawline, the same mouth, the same nose, but with mom's eyes. And then, um, and one of the moms is actually uh, Hispanic. And so it's bizarro because there's a little girl who looks exactly like my son, Ethan, but she's darker skinned and she has black hair and she has some features that are more Hispanic features. But it's like a, you know, Hispanic version of my son, basically. That's awesome. (laughs) It's crazy. Yeah. Um, But no, I mean, it's, it's really crazy. It's not just the Facebook page. You, you've met some of them, right? Yes. Um, we had, I've met now four of them, um, four of the actual Diblings. We had one family that was visiting Denver for a wedding. So we got to meet, um, that little girl. And then another mom in California said, you know, let's have a reunion. And I have a family camp cabin in Carmel, which was awesome. Um, and it, just ended up being her and her son, who's a dibling, and then um, another family and their one dibling. So, um, and I only took Ethan. Hunter was um, two at the time, and it was just to travel with both of them would would have been a nightmare. So I just brought Ethan with me. But uh, and then about a couple of weeks ago, we traveled to Seattle um, because my mom had requested a trip to Seattle for her seventieth birthday present. And she'd never been. (laughs) And so it was on her bucket list. So we went and um, there's a dibbling girl that lives there. So we actually went out on Lake Union in a pontoon boat and spent, you know, a few hours just having dinner and talking and uh, the kids, Hunter and Ethan, played with her. Um, And it was awesome. And everybody's really open with each other, I assume, that they just say that you're, you're siblings through this donor and they all know this. So no, and that's the big controversy. It's so interesting because, you know, we want to stay in touch with each other, but not all the kids know. Um, And they, and there was a big, I think a lot of the families shied away from these, you know, reunion concepts or union concepts since it was the first one, because they kind of didn't know what to tell the kids. Uh, and the oldest dibling is turning nine in August. And there was a really great, post in our, our dibbling group recently from his father. So that family situation is a father who's sterile in a heterosexual marriage. Um, they had one son, um, with the mom's egg and the donor's sperm. 
Um, and so that dad has really, I think, been dreading telling his son about all of this. And he just... Oh, so he he has not told his son. Oh, he did. He just did oh, recently. Just told, he, go, sorry, that, go ahead. His post started with, today is the day. I have told, you know... Um, told my son about this and, um, he said it went very well. He's very interested in the Diblings. He said, I put together a slideshow for him of all of their faces and their pictures and explained who they were and where they lived. And, um, so they had apparently a really good talk. And I think that as these kids are hitting the seven, eight, nine mark, they're really, um, the parents are talking more about this and starting to, describe it. I will also say that the parents that were only able to have one child, um, all because of fertility issues, I think they would all have had two or more if they could have. Um, they really are looking to this dibbling group as an extended family for their kid because they really want the kid to have more family and more support. And, um, so yeah, that's all fascinating. And so he's really the first one to really explain it in detail Um, and I think as we start seeing these kids hit these older marks, then we're going to have a much more, um, robust reunion where people are actually coming. And, um, yeah. And I, you know, with my boys, I've tried to explain it to them from the very beginning. Um, and you know, that was part of that messaging that that child psychologist gave to me. So they, but they don't get it. Like Ethan's six and he's still, I mean, conceptually, he knows he has diblings. He's seen their picture. He knew when he does, does he know the term? Yeah. Does he know the, yeah. the term? Dibbling? And you know, okay. when he went to Seattle, you know, I tried not to emphasize that this was a dibbling because, um, that little girl, the, the mom said, so that was a lesbian couple. And they said, you know, we've told her that she has a donor and, you know, about that concept. We haven't introduced the concept of the dibblings, but we're not adverse to that. So if it comes up naturally, then fine. Um, and it didn't, they just played together. They didn't talk about it, um, while we were together. But as we drove away, Ethan said to me out of the blue, he said, mom, was that one of my diblings? (laughs) (laughs) So I said, yes, that was, you know, and isn't that great? And, uh, so they, over time, they'll hopefully conceptually pick it up, but I've always been super open with them and tried to at least have them familiar with the concept as they get older. Well, and psychologically, from your perspective and from a lesbian couple's perspective, it's a little easier because you you know biologically there had to have had a gamete from the other side. So, you know, it's a lot easier to explain as opposed to a heterosexual couple who sometimes does have to struggle with their feelings on their infertility and how to explain that. You know, at least in your case, you're, that, that level of infertility came from, you just didn't have that second part. So you, you borrowed it from somebody else kind exactly. of thing. <laughs> well, I love the, the feeling that there's extended family and that your kids have like this other family too and these other connections. Um, do you know how many Diblings are out there? Yes, there are 22 um, known Diblings about to be 23. Literally that lesbian couple that we met up with two weeks ago is, I think they're having a C-section in like three days or so. Good luck to them. Congratulations. Do you know if that donor is still donating? So this is interesting. So my older son, Ethan, is actually on the autism spectrum. He's very high functioning. He is above average in academics at school. 
but he was diagnosed at 21 months old. And it's, you know, at that point, we didn't even know if he was going to be verbal. We didn't know, you know, to what degree this was going to impact his life. Um, we've been blessed with all of the therapies and the early interventions that he um, is doing so well. Um, you probably would not know if you met him today. He would just seem like kind of a quirky kid. Um, right. And he's very I have, I have a similar high-functioning child, so ah, I totally get yes. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in any event, uh, he was diagnosed, and then two of the other diddlings were diagnosed. So uh, one of those families went to the cryobank and said, you know, we've got this issue. And also... Several of the kids had issues with lazy eye, which is called strabismus. And, um, you know, Ethan had to have surgery on his eye when he was a baby and will have to wear glasses to strengthen his weaker eye until he's about 10. Um, and then he'll be done with the whole thing. And that's another one where the intervention was so early that you wouldn't see it. It does not like when he doesn't have his glasses on, you can't tell he has a lazy eye. It doesn't present. Um, so it's all good there too, but um, one of the families called, told the cryobank about these two issues. The cryobank got in touch with him. Um, they put him on the shelf, so to speak. So he's not available to the public any longer. Um, and I don't think, honestly, he donated that much, even though we've got, you know, we've got a lot of families out there. But 20 plus, yeah. Yeah. So he, I don't think he donated that much. And I think by the time they quote, put him on the shelf, he wasn't donating anymore. They just told him, you know, you can't donate anymore. But uh, several of the family said, but we want siblings, we want more siblings, nibblings through the same donor. And so they went to him and asked him if he would donate just for our families who had already had kids with his sperm. Even, even knowing the risk that there could be these conditions. Yep. And, uh, and he agreed to do that. So he actually donated... Um, and I believe that this baby that's about to be born um, is that's probably the family that requested it, um, along with another family in Texas that had a baby um, in uh, 2015. I think that that um, was also a family that probably requested it of him. So a couple things happened. He apologized profusely for the strabismus because I guess he asked his mom about it and it did run in kind of the extended family. Um, and he didn't disclose it. So, um, so he apologized profusely for that, um, and said he would be available for, um, further donations, if you will. So, um, so that was all fascinating. And I think that that's a good sign that eventually when these kids get into their teen years and maybe adult years, that he would be open to contact with them. That's my hope. Um, so I don't know if you've heard that there's lots of ways to find donors, even if they never had that intention with cheek swabs and the internet. Have you ever been tempted to like cheek swab Ethan and like do it, do it 23 and me and kind of find out who your donor is? I have not because I didn't even know that that existed. <laughs> so I just learned oh, no. literally yesterday no, no, no. I just learned about this and, uh, I'm totally going to do that. Like, I am so like, I've done all kinds of, <laughs> Sorry, donor. there's a few families that they've registered their kids, but they have like, you can't tell who they are from the registration and they haven't joined the Facebook group. They're just kind of on the fringe. And a lot of us have like tried to super sleuth who they are and <laughs> figure out where they live <laughs> and, you know, do all of this internet stalking basically. So yeah, no, I'm a total internet stalker type person. So I will, I, I'm going to do it now for sure. 
Um, and I think if I had more time um, in the past, I probably would. I've never done any kind of research to try to find out who he is based on, you know, geographic location or, you know, I know he's a physics PhD student in California. So. Oh, I was going to ask what his, what kind of information his profile had, but physics PhD, California, that, that pretty limits right. it. I mean, yeah. And <laughs> PS, and by the way, my, Sorry my again, boyfriend Denver. who got away, love my life, was a physics PhD student in California. Oh, what? Oh, you, no. you know the irony? It probably it's probably your ex boyfriend. <laughs> that's that's probably your donor. It should be hilarious. Right? Be so hilarious. Yeah. No, the timing wouldn't work out because like when this guy donated, the age didn't line up. But yes, that would be hilarious. Well, I I love everything about your story. I love everything you've done to create this healthy family and have support and still have your career and that you embrace that there's extended family with diblings. Um, before we kind of close, is there any other part of your story that you, you want to share about using a sperm donor or diblings or anything who, anyone who might be going through this, do you have any advice or words of wisdom? Yeah. I mean, I would just say to professional women who are considering doing this, um, you know, number one, I tell all attorneys, this is probably, you know, too invasive, but I tell the women, you know, freeze your eggs, go immediately and freeze your eggs because, you know, especially professional women who wait longer, you have this assumption that you're just going to be fertile until 40, at least. I think that's the misconception. Um, and really those critical years between 35 and 40, I think a lot of women become infertile in that window and they don't realize that that's going to be the case and they don't go until they're 40 and it's too late. So I would say, you know, at the very least go in get tested and, you know, if you can afford it, freeze your eggs, you will not regret it. Um, and you know, they're not fertilized. So you don't have any of those issues of, you know, what do I do with these? Um, if you don't ever need them. And then the other thing I would say is just to women who are considering doing this alone, um, you know, you can do it and you just have to build a support net network and really plan. Um, and, you know, one of the great things about this whole experience for me, and this sounds terrible, but like, I completely drive this, you know, I picked their names, I decide how they're going to be parenting. Like, there's no, there's no compromises that I have to make with someone else. And, uh, Ooh, no compromise. Like, I, I like that. I'm rethinking. I need to do some revisions. So, I mean, that's kind of a crazy thing, but it's kind of this. Divorce yeah. your spouses. Go with a sperm donor. <laughs> oh, that's I. I love that. That's a great way. Great takeaway from this is that you're you're completely in control of everything, which makes it a really nice experience. Yeah. My mom calls them the designer babies. She oh, says you designed. Okay. She says you designed your life <laughs> just the way you want it. So I think that's yeah, pretty funny. Some extent, that's that's amazing. Um, thank you so much. I I love your story. I love that you're willing to share share all of this with us and to to someone who might be about to go down this road. I think it'll be really helpful for them to hear how it went with you. Um, so thank you again for for willing to talk with us and put this on our podcast. Yes, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Lesson of the day. I think talking to Danielle, the lesson has got to be, you can do it. You can have it all. You can have the amazing career. You can have the family. And even when your plans don't start out or go the way you, you thought of the traditional route, there are options. And that's one of the amazing things about assisted reproductive technology is that there are many options out there. And there's really some fun and amazing ways to embrace different forms of, of family. 
also totally girl power, you know, girls, girl girls can do everything. <laughs> Woo! Um, but speaking of options, there are so many options for ways that you can get hold of us or give us feedback about how you feel about our podcast. You can leave us an iTunes review, which we would love. iTunes uh, apparently really, really likes it when we get those. So um, we, we want to make iTunes happy. You can also give us a call at 303-997-1903 and leave us some feedback and we can either play it on the air or we can respond to you. Once again, 303-997-1903. Or you can go over to our Patreon community and join us there and leave us some messages or through Facebook. We have lots of ways to get in touch with us. So we just want to hear from you, but we appreciate that everybody is here with us. And we especially appreciate Chris at Work at Bird Studios who makes us sound awesome. Thanks, Chris. See you all next week. Bye.